Well, this is the third lesson of our curriculum, The Gift of Tongues. And this is the beginning of three parts called Five Bad Doctrines Debunked. And if you have ever, of course, we are spirit-filled, and so we live in spirit-filled circles. But if you've ever been outside of spirit-filled circles, you've heard most of these doctrines. Uh, And they're really just doctrinal or religious reasons for why tongues or the Holy Spirit is not critical today. We want to make sure we can debunk these. We want to make sure we have an answer for these because these are, I call them bad doctrines. Therefore, we should debunk them. And if they're bad doctrines, they're not good doctrines. And by doctrine, we just mean a system of teaching, a a system of teaching, a system of beliefs whereby people live their life. And if you know someone who holds one of these bad doctrines, they will live their life according to it, which means they won't ever be spirit-filled. They won't ever pray in the spirit. They won't ever enjoy the benefits of being a tongue talker. And so we're going to look at these bad doctrines systematically and debunk them and look at what scriptures they back them up with and then uh, shoot holes to that very easily. So let's jump into our lesson here. There are five main popularly held erroneous teachings or doctrines concerning speaking in tongues. These five main doctrines always seem to be held or propagated by those believers who don't speak in tongues. Oddly enough, you don't ever find a tongue talker that holds any of these. Because tongue talkers hold the doctrine that we speak in tongues. And when you believe that, you receive that. And you see the Bible principle of faith work. So these are always held by tongue talkers. Or excuse me, non-tongue talkers. Because you've always got to justify your lifestyle. I don't ever want to have to look outside the Bible to justify my lifestyle. I don't want to ever have to look outside the Bible to justify why I'm not doing something in the Bible. That's bad doctrine. We as Christians, we build our doctrine completely on the Bible. We don't even really build it on experience. Now, we might can go through an experience and judge it in light of the scriptures, just as a scientist might fall from the airplane and judge it in light of the law of gravity, but we don't base anything just on experience because experiences are a dime a dozen, and even the devil has power in the earth today to manipulate experience. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith in the scriptures. We're going to study these scriptures to evaluate the merit of each of these teachings. But first, we want to cover how do we build doctrine. Every Christian needs to know how we build doctrine. Because even the heathen have doctrine. Even the Muslims have doctrine. The Mormons have doctrine. The Jehovah's Witness have doctrine. Everybody has doctrine. The pagans. All a doctrine is is a system of teaching that you live your life according to. In that regard, most Christians have beliefs, but they don't have doctrine. Because doctrine, by definition, is a system of teaching you live your life by. And so I really don't care what people believe. I personally want to know how do you live. Because how you live is so much more important than what you believe. Because if you believe it enough, you'll live it. We all have been to church long enough. We can repeat the proper doctrine, but it doesn't mean it's our doctrine. And of course, I I, I use the example of homosexuality. We all understand homosexual doctrine. We understand the system of teaching whereby a homosexual man or woman live their life. But that doesn't make us homosexual, nor does it make us one of their disciples. And you might very well understand my doctrine as your pastor, but that does not make it your doctrine. So what we want to understand, and just as a side note on teaching on doctrine, we want to know how we as Christians build doctrine because this is so critical. Too many Christians in the earth today, some of you included, don't study your Bible. You don't have a clue what you believe or why you believe it. It can't be because pastor says so, or you know Billy Graham said so, or I read a book once. We don't care about any of that. 
We want to have doctrine because we studied it in the Bible. We can see it in the Bible. But again, most Christians today, they don't have time for God. They don't have time for Bible study. And I would include some of you in that. You don't study your Bible. So anything you have may not be nothing more than just a repeated belief. And it's not your personal doctrine. So we must first understand how we build doctrine. Christian doctrine is based solely, and I would add completely, upon God's word. Doctrine is never built on hearsay, experience, worldly wisdom, or the teachings of other religions. We do not build doctrine on hearsay. We do not build doctrine on experience. Now again, we can take experience and we can judge it in light of the word. But if we were to build doctrine on experience, we might end up being the knucklehead that says, well, I saw in the Bible where it says I should pray, and so I tried that and it didn't work. Therefore, no, 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 that's walking by sight. What about Abraham that prayed for 25 years to have a boy and then got one? What about Elijah that prayed for three and a half years and it didn't rain and then prayed and it did? We, we don't walk by sight. That makes us very weak, carnal Christians. So we don't build doctrine on what somebody said. We don't build doctrine on what we've experienced. Oh, well, you know, I've been betrayed by five husbands. So therefore, marriage can't be of God. Well, have you ever thought you're the common denominator? We always want to blame God or the word or adjust things. Yeah. If we want to have sound biblical Bible doctrine, the Bible must be the only text from which we build doctrine. That's why preachers who pull in books or pull in stuff or motivational speech or the Reader's Digest, or now it's popular to use Barney Fife and Andy Griffith Show or Disney, or a lot of, a lot of churches now are using movies to draw spiritual principles from. Back when The Matrix came out 16 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of churches, when it came out on VHS, <laughs> they used it in their church because there seems to be some parallels. Well, you can draw parallels with Superman if you want to, savior of the world. You know, no father, no mother sent to another planet to help them. In the comics, his mom and dad were marrying Joseph. You know, but we're not going to use DC comics or action comics to preach the gospel. There's no power in that. We use the Bible. It's the word of God. And Christians just get so bored with God, they got to chase other things that tickle their fancy. The Bible establishes a law concerning the power of witnesses. And this is how we build doctrine. Deuteronomy 19.15b, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. All right, this is the first time that that law is established in the Bible. And then it goes on to be quoted in Numbers, Matthew, John, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, and Hebrews. We know the law basically, we always quote it saying, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Funny that in the Old Testament it's quoted twice. In the Gospels it's quoted twice. And in the, in the epistles it's quoted three times. So you have it established, Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, and at least twice in each one of those. So it's fulfilling its own law, which is so cool. But this is also how we build doctrine. This is a spiritual principle God ordained. You do not build doctrine on one verse alone. Now, the Mormons have done that with the baptism for the dead out of the book of Corinthians. But Paul says they baptize for the dead. He doesn't say we do. But the Mormons took it and they built a doctrine on it. So that's why they have huge archives of genealogy. 
because they believe you can be baptized in proxy for someone who's in hell and get them out of hell and into heaven based on one verse that Paul said to a pagan church called Corinth and said, they be baptized for the dead, not we. So we, we cannot uh, build doctrine. There's so many erroneous charismatic doctrines built on one verse. Like when the thief is caught, he must repay sevenfold. All right, that's a proverb. And there was a big teaching in the 90s that, you know, when you catch the devil, he's got to repay you sevenfold. Well, why would you want something he took home with him? And why not just go back to your father and say, Dad, can I have more? Or the other one, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. One verse. No, Charismatica hijacked that to rip off dumb Christians. Find me more verses that back that up. I totally reject that as a doctrine. I understand, you know, people are out there, go get money from them, honestly. Heathen want to eat, open up a restaurant and get their, their wealth. Or the best way to get the wealth of the wicked is to get them born again. And it was always used to, to promote what they call the end time transfer of wealth, which I totally reject as well because I don't see more than two or three verses for it. I see one verse out of Proverbs. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Now, I don't mean to offend you if you were foolish enough to bite on that and violate scripture. It preaches good when you want to raise money or you need to be on the television, but it's not a sound Bible doctrine. You don't find anywhere in the New Testament. What you do find in the New Testament is he is faithful to supply our needs. That kind of scripture, though, does feed into what the New Testament calls greed and avarice and what I call the, uh, the bingo mindset, the lottery mindset. I just got to wait for these last days and the, the wealth of the wicked will roll into me because I'm just. No, you're just doing nothing. Amen. All right, so just to debunk a few crazy-matic doctrines that aren't even doctrines because they're not based on but one scripture out of context that some, uh, you know, pimp preacher on television was teaching you. These verses teach us that we can't base doctrine on only one verse. We must have the witness of at least two or three to establish any word or doctrine. And you know, quite honestly, if it's only mentioned once in the Bible, it may not be very important to God. But if it's mentioned over and over and over again, well, many great theologians have, have said you major on the majors and you minor on the minors. We don't have a whole lot of teaching on angels, so we don't major on angels. We don't have a whole lot of teaching on demons, so we don't major on demons. And there's a lot in there, but not like salvation or grace or healing or the church or evangelism or, or uh, holiness and so there's, you know, you should teach in proportionality to what is listed in the scriptures. You know, you, you don't base a church on Jonah. You got one book on Jonah and a couple of references in the gospels. And you don't base a church on something that's only got one or two verses, nor can you build a ministry on it. We must have the witness of at least two or three scriptures to establish any word of doctrine. We are to build doctrinal premises based upon text. Doctrinal premises based upon a text. We build doctrinal premises based upon a text. Too often, however, many doctrines can be described as a premise in search of a text. A premise in search of a text. That is unfortunately like a lot of modern science. They've already determined what they believe, and now they've got to go find the evidence for it. I had one of my own professors tell me that when I was pointing out some scientific research that, that kind of debunked the old age of the earth thing. Just one line of evidence. And he told me, point blank, he said, if your evidence doesn't support your hypothesis, you get better evidence. 
He basically said, you turn a blind eye to what you don't like rather than adjust your hypothesis. Now, too many Christians, they cling to the two or three verses that they love and they ignore the ones that complicate their doctrine. Mr. Rick Newman was sharing with me the reason he came to this church 25, 28 years ago is because he came up here and visited when Pastor Vaughn had first started the church and Pastor Vaughn was preaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost and went through many of the scriptures, all the scriptures we're going to share in the next few weeks. And Rick went back to Texas and said to his Baptist pastor, I'm mad because I just saw a whole bunch of scriptures in the Bible about this tongue stuff and you've never told me about it. Why have you been holding out on me? And his Baptist pastor said, son, we don't talk about things we don't know anything about. Well, go educate yourself. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is borderline stupid when the answers are right in front of you. All right. So noteworthy doctrinal statistics. Well, let me back up and say this. For me personally, I'm trained as a scientist. I have a scientific mind. That was my degree. That was my field. I, I, when I build doctrine, I build doctrine just like a scientist would, would evaluate whatever he's studying. I, I look at the scriptures and I use them as evidences. I look at the scriptures as observations and I, build an, I take enough scriptures and I can begin to paint a picture. And that's how I build doctrine. That is actually called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a scientific principle when applied to the scriptures. You know, a scientific principle basically means as a scientist makes observations and as they make observations, repeated observations, they begin to arrive at a hypothesis and they develop this hypothesis and they want to test it and they test the predictability of it and it becomes a theory and then it goes on to become promoted to some degree to a law. That's a very loose appropriation of scientific principle. That's the same thing as hermeneutics in terms of the scriptures. We let the Bible interpret itself. And if there's a scripture that doesn't seem to fit your doctrine, you have to be able to account for it. You can't just ignore it. In my personal teaching and understandings of the concept and premise of the heart, I probably have 600 scriptures that teach on the heart the way I teach on the heart. That the heart is the manifestation of your soul. And that God doesn't put things in your heart. You and I put things in our heart based on what we think, what we will, what we want, what we emote. But having said 600 scriptures that back up my doctrine, I have a list on my iPhone of five verses that kind of contradict me. So I have to be able to adjust five verses. Like Nehemiah saying, and the Lord placed it in my heart to build the walls. How do I adjust that? How do I account for that? And so we have to always be able to not ignore doctrinal or scriptures that contradict what we believe. We have to be able to look at them and say, all right, Lord, I believe this is what you're telling me, but I've got a verse here too that seems to contradict my point. I just throw all that out there to help you guys be better Bible students and more rooted and grounded in the word of God. If the biggest, fluffiest church in the land says the problem with modern churches is too much doctrine, I want to make sure we have more than enough doctrine because I don't want to be a fluffy, loose, heretic church. Every one of you is commanded in the scriptures to build doctrine, to study the scriptures. Timothy, Timothy, and Titus emphasizes doctrine 15 times. Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. That's the local church, the pastoral epistles. All right, so some noteworthy doctrinal statistics. Just as a comparison, below are listed the number of verses concerning three major Bible doctrines. Communion, very critical doctrine. Thank God for communion. Seven passages in the New Testament, totaling 35 verses, are given to describe and teach the, this holy doctrine and right. Only, now that's not 30, that's just 35 verses in those seven passages. The longest being 1 Corinthians 11. 
And we know it talks about you can be sick, you can be dead, you can be weak, you can be asleep prematurely. Seven passages, 35 verses. Water baptism, seven passages totaling only 16 verses. You believe there's only 16 verses in the New Testament that deal with being water baptized? That's, I don't include John's baptism. New Testament water baptism for the believer. Tongues, 15 passages totaling 110 verses. Whoa, I just need two or three to build a doctrine. But the Lord gives us 15 passages totaling 110 verses. I think with 110 verses, we ought to have a pretty watertight understanding of tongues. And if we keep in mind that we always build doctrine within the confines of Scripture, we don't have to look at historicity. We don't have to look at antiquity. We can stand in the confines of the Bible. 110 verses, we ought to have a pretty solid doctrine. All right, the topic of speaking in tongues is mentioned or alluded to in the following passages. These are those 15 passages here. Isaiah, Mark, John, John, Acts, 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 Romans, and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and Jude. So there's your 15 passages. You total them up, should be 110 verses. Obviously, there is no shortage of scripture from which we can build a doctrine concerning the gift of tongues. So now let's move on. Let's jump into bad doctrine number one. You've all heard most of these. I'm going to give you enough evidences. Uh, this is not to boast myself. I, I, I understand I have a sharp mind. There's things I am. There's things I am not. I do have a sharp mind. Most of these doctrines I had probably debunked by the time I was 19 because I was an avid student of the word 20 years ago. Now, I say that to shame some of you. As your pastor, I love you, and you've been in this church way longer than me, some of you, and you ought to be better Bible students. You ought to be better Bible students. You've been born again a long time, and this Bible has never changed, but you've let other things rob you of your time with God. And all these doctrines, just in my comings and goings at campus, I debunked by the time I was at most 20. I could have written this, these curriculum 20 years ago. I say that to help us be better students of the word. Because the scriptures don't change. Every one of us has our favorite this, that, or the other that we've learned and memorized and have committed to heart, but some of that isn't the Bible. There's only 110 verses. I could probably quote you most of them right now off the top of my head just because I've studied them. This is how the Bible is. It does not change. Now, the interpretations, you know, you NIV, NLT, NES, NAS, King James, New King James, I understand all that. But whatever your flavor is, you ought to learn it and at least know the addresses. Bad doctrine number one, the gift of tongues has passed away. We've all heard that. <laughs> This common teaching is often accompanied by the belief that all gifts of the Spirit have passed away. This teaching allows for no tongues in the life of the believer or in the local church. And this is what we call in doctrinal parlance uh, cessationists. They believe they have ceased. It has come to pass. It's no longer appropriate. A lot of your hardline denominations are cessationists. A lot of your Calvinists are cessationists. Um, that's just what they believe. That's their doctrine. Three different teachings attempt to assign a date to the cessation or when this thing stopped. Now, again, to, to believe this doctrine, you have to look outside the Bible. Okay? To believe this doctrine, you have to venture outside the Bible. Right there, you've already violated hermeneutics. 
So you're already in dangerous doctrinal water. One cessation date is often said to be 70 AD, a date that corresponds with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Why it happened on this date, I personally do not know. But that would mean that the Apostle John no longer spoke in tongues or operated in the gift of prophecy or discerning of spirits or word of wisdom when he received the revelation in 96 AD. Whoops, is right. Okay, the revelation was written in 96 AD from the Isle of Patmos where he saw Jesus, that's discerning of spirits, and he saw the future, which is word of wisdom, and he wrote for the present church, which is word of knowledge. Whoops. So this won't work at all. The belief in the cessation of, of gifts in 70 AD would in effect call the book of Revelation a lie. So that was very easy to deep six. Now, as a side note, I probably wouldn't have known that 20 years ago. That's recent studies. The second cessation date is given 100 AD, the death of the apostle John. This teaching states that the gifts ceased when the last apostle died. Okay, that of course assumes apostles aren't anymore. Why, why was John the last apostle? The New Testament mentions over 25 apostles. I believe the number's 28. Epaphroditus being an apostle to the Philippian church. Quill and Priscilla are listed as apostles. Many apostles, not just the 12. So why is John the last apostle? And, you know, just to be honest, we don't know exactly what year he did die. Was it 99 AD? Was it 101 AD? What makes it 100 AD? Is that plus or minus a lunar calendar? Did we lose a day somewhere? Because we know all that stuff's still a little iffy out there. Plus or minus four or five years. So maybe it was 105 AD. Maybe it was 95 AD, which we should backtrack all of our calendars by four or five years plus or minus a lunar calendar event or something, you know. Seriously. But once again, we're looking outside the Bible to try to interpret the Bible. The third date is given as sometime in the fourth century, a rough date corresponding to the canonization of the Bible as we know it. And that line of logic basically states, according to 1 Corinthians 13, when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect shall come to pass, that which is in part. So that, that line of doctrine holds that the scriptures, the canonized scriptures, that is the perfect that 1 Corinthians 13 is referring to. So when that has come to pass, then that which is imperfect, the gifts, that'll be done away with. All right. We're not exactly 100% for sure when the Nicene Convention was held and the Bible was canonized, but it was canonized over a couple years. So if this doctrine is true, at which point in the fourth century, which would be about 354 AD, did the Holy Ghost say, that's it, I'm done? You know, was it when they started to meet? Was it when they finally added the last book? Was it when they finally put it to the press, printing press? You know, obviously they didn't have one, it was handwritten. But again, a ludicrous assumption trying to tell us when this stopped. Just because the scriptures go silent at the end of the revelation doesn't mean the Holy Ghost does. Amen. Scriptural basis. The closest scripture this doctrine is based upon is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails, but where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Where there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, and again, that's what they're referring to, the Bible, then that which is in part shall be done away. How these verses support the cessation of tongues is not clear. So I, I make some critical observations shooting holes in this doctrinal stance. Below are questions worth asking in line with this doctrinal logic. If tongues has ceased, has prophecy ceased? Because that's in the same passage. You know, tongues shall pass away, 
prophecy shall fail because revelation 19 10 says the testimony of jesus is a spirit of prophecy so does that mean the testimony of jesus is no longer prophecy if the gifts have passed away that doesn't make sense has knowledge ceased because it says three things shall basically cease prophecy tongues and knowledge does knowledge cease the word of knowledge or is it talking about logical knowledge when will this stuff pass away? Or, or maybe does this reference refer to that when I, when I see the Lord, I will know all for I will be known? Huh? Do we no longer know in part? Does that mean in four, 354 AD, everybody started knowing everything? Because Paul said, I only know in part, only prophesy in part, but knowledge shall cease. So we should all know everything now, right? You can't just apply cessation just to tongues, if you're going to use this scripture to back up your doctrine, you have to apply it to prophecy, you have to apply it to tongues, and you have to apply it to knowledge. You and I, let me just help us, we still know parts, and our parts ain't much. I mean, all together here, we're still just scraps. <laughs> and the mercy and grace of God covers the difference. Can we no longer prophesy in part? We can't testify of Jesus? And the part we prophesy of Jesus is the part he did for us. I can't testify of your part but I can testify the spirit of testimony of Jesus, what he did in my life. I can't testify what he's done in Wendell's or the Bedus or the Eldridge's. I can testify my part. Is that still not prophesying in part? Or has that been done away? See, it's ludicrous. And all you have to do is use half a bit of logic. God did give us a beautiful mind on purpose. Amen. What is that which is perfect? What does that refer to? If the Bible isn't clear on it, leave it alone. I, I've never found an answer for what the perfect is. We only know he wants perfect, and that's Jesus. So if we don't know what it is and we don't have any other scriptures backing it up, you just kind of leave it alone rather than try to put an interpretation on it unless you want to qualify it. This is my interpretation because I like 15 other verses to prove it. If the perfect is the Bible, then only that which is in part will be done away. According to this passage, the only thing which is referred to as partial is knowledge and prophecy, not tongues. Know in part, prophesy in part. When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away with. So the partial thing is not tongues. All right, you follow that in that verse? I know in part, I prophesy in part. Those are the only two partials in that verse. When that which is perfect shall come, that which is in part shall be done away with. Tongues is not mentioned as a partial thing. So even if you want to apply this verse to your doctrine, tongues is excluded by simple logic and deduction. I mean, this is so easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. And I'm not even a theologian. Didn't go to no cemetery and get some THD. <laughs> All right, conclusion. Only one verse is used to attempt to explain or anticipate the secession of tongues. The other arguments for this belief are mere conjecture or history, not scripture. Without two or three scriptural references supporting this teaching, it cannot be considered sound doctrine. It cannot. So we have to discard it. The other, I might add the other extra biblical evidence is, well, I don't speak in tongues. Wait, wait, wait. So God has to manifest all he is through you and you're his litmus test, you're his faucet. And if it hasn't happened to you, God's never done it. I've never walked on water, but I believe Peter did. I never defeated an Amalekite army, but I believe the Israelites did. I never fought a Goliath, but I think David did. Just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean God isn't still doing it. Amen. I mean, this is such, this is such easy doctrinal answers. It's, it's, just, it's almost sad that these folks run seminaries and write books. 
because it's just too easy to jump rope through it. All right, bad doctrine number two, tongues are of the devil. Anybody heard that one? <laughs> My friend Andrew hadn't even heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hadn't even heard of King David, but he'd heard tongues were of the devil. The devil's evangelists are so much more influential than the body of Christ at times. This common teaching also usually believes the first teaching. Tongues is done away with, and if there is any tongues today, it's of the devil. Wait, 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 I thought tongues was done away with. Well, either believe they're done away with or don't believe they're done away with. But see, they have to explain how half the body of Christ still speaks in tongues and growing bigger every day. Well, 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 it's not for today, which means that whole entire two-thirds of the body of Christ is demon-possessed. And all their missionary outposts and all their crusades and all their nursing home ministries and all their homeless ministries. and Wow, the devil's really helping promote the gospel because those folks are doing a great work for Jesus. Come on, man. That's so sad. Tongues have passed away, but if there are tongues, then it's the work of the devil. This kind of statement is then generally followed up with some obscure story about a friend of a friend of a second cousin that once dabbled in the occult after getting drunk at the county fair and also a reference to the exorcist. I've had a couple of those conversations. I'm like, All right, when's the midget come into this story? <laughs> and everybody's got a relative that has one of these stories. Uh, and I always tell the story, I got a relative who is not the spiritual head of any home, much less my, my family or extended family, not known to be a spiritual guru of any sorts, nor, nor does he even have a Jesus fish on his car. But I got spirit filled and he, he had to warn me about tongues. And when have you ever tried to spiritually disciple me, sir? And then I became a pastor and I was pastoring a spirit-filled church. He had to tell me the same stupid story about the county fair and the midget. And then honestly, again, in the last year or two, I was with him at another family thing and I heard this same story again. And I thought, I got to remember this, this lineage of people, a, a friend of a friend of a, you know, at the county fair and the trapeze and the bearded lady and the midget. And, and yeah, whatever. Scriptural basis. There is not a single biblical example of tongues ever being inspired by a demon. On the contrary, the Bible clearly places all the blame for the manifestation of tongues. Look at this. The Bible blames tongues on the Holy Spirit of the Lord. It's God's fault. Shame on him. Now, I will add this because it just occurs to me. Just as the Holy Spirit could come upon me or you and we pray in a tongue and it be Russian, and a Russian person hear it, or, or an African tongue, and an African hear it, or Chinese, and you've never spoken Chinese. We have cast demons out of people who didn't speak English, and they spoke in English to curse us, blankety blank, blank, blank. And you hear those stories all the time. Even our youth in Panama a year and a half ago, they cast a demon out of a girl, took them about two and a half hours, and the girl was a witch, and she cussed them in English, and she didn't speak a lick of English. But, so I, I would say this, now that's extra biblical, but I think we understand the difference. The demon is cursing Jesus, not glorifying him. And the demon is cursing the Christian exercising authority over it, not blessing. And so it's because demons understand all languages. They, they, you know, they just speak spirit. They can speak any language. They've been here forever. And the Greek, daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, is where we get the word demon. Part of the root in the flavor of the word demon means knowledge. And we understand demons have lots of knowledge. They've been around a long, long time. 
one of the men that Dr. Sumrall knew who was demon-possessed in Brazil, at the age of four, he was demon-possessed writing prescriptions in Latin and German and filling prescriptions in Brazil as a four-year-old child of a witch or a sorceress because he was possessed of a demon that said, who spoke to him, I possessed a German doctor 300 years ago and had traveled across the seas and possessed this kid and it made this kid to write Latin. So I understand languages, they're neither here nor there, but I wanna be very clear. A Christian who loves Jesus praying in tongues can never be a demon because it's not even biblical. We don't have a single example or a single demonstration of tongues ever being demon inspired. The Bible places all the blame on the Holy Spirit, not a demon spirit. As in Isaiah 28, Mark 16, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, Romans 8, and 1 Corinthians 12. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. So critical observations of this goofy doctrine. Below are several observations and questions for those Christians who generally subscribe to this doctrine. Since when did you ever believe in demon power? Just an observation. Because the folks that point out that, oh, that's, that's got to be a demon spirit, they wouldn't know a demon spirit if they saw it. And if one manifested in somebody, they'd be the first to run. <laughs> Furthermore, if we did cast a demon out in front of you, you wouldn't even think it was real anyway because you don't even know what it's supposed to look like. So since when, you, when, since when were you all hyper-demonized? Since when were you all pro-demon and casting out demons and so demon-conscious? That really brings out the ignorance and the bias in people. Question number two, since when did you believe a Christian could have a demon? Most of these folks don't believe in any way whatsoever a Christian could ever have a demon. This would include, not, no, no offense, it includes Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, includes uh, Calvinists, and includes uh, Methodists. Most of these folks, are outside, even within some Pentecostal circles, some Assemblies of God don't believe Christians can have a demon. But now all of a sudden you want to believe I have a demon because you've heard me supernaturally pray in a language that you know is not English or any other known language, so therefore I must have a demon. But I just won three people to Jesus and pastored a service. So it doesn't make sense. This, it just further shows how doctrinally squirrely the body of Christ is. Not just in Africa, but in America too. In to if tongues are of the devil, you, are you implying that entire Christian denominations are so demonized that they actually manifest those demons every service in the name of Jesus? If tongues is of the devil and you believe that, are you insinuating that the church of God in Christ is, demon, is a demon-possessed denomination? Are you inferring that the church of God of prophecy is a demon-possessed denomination? Are you inferring that the church of God is a demon-possessed denomination? Are you inferring that the assemblies of God are a demon-possessed denomination? Are you inferring that the non-denominational churches are uh, demon-possessed? And what about all the Baptist churches in Africa and all the Methodist churches in Africa and all the Episcopal churches in Africa? Because they all speak in tongues. It seems to be only in America and dead white Europe do uh, Christians have these doctrines? Because everywhere else that God is moving, this is not even up for debate. Amen. So was Paul demonized? Because he spoke in tongues with a bunch of Christians. Or were his tongues different? Peter, the 120 at Pentecost? At what point did tongues transition from being Holy Spirit inspired to being demon inspired? Can you nail that down scripturally? Is that one of those acerbic dates you pull out of the air reading too much antiquity, watching Indiana Jones late at night? Why are there no examples of demons speaking in tongues when Jesus cast them out? 
Just questions worth asking. So contradictory scriptures. I like to back it up with the word, you know. Below are several scriptures that contradict the teaching that tongues is of the devil. 1 Corinthians 14, 5. I would that you all spake with tongues. Or did that verse expire? And if it did expire, please tell me the date. Because I'm operating under a false assumption that it is no expiration date. Nobody, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to eat meat that expired. You know, you open up sandwich meat and it's got little white things growing on it. Sometimes you take a whiff. Usually it's not advisable. Ooh, ham should not smell that way. So you check the date. Whoa, that went out last year. It's almost the new year. This thing's over a year old. <laughs> I'm operating under the assumption the scriptures don't expire. And uh, what I found certainly is not stale. It's called rivers of living water, not stale, stagnant water. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. Therefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. So when did that verse expire? Because what they're doing now is forbidding us to speak with tongues. A friend of mine uh, was an undercover tongue-talking Baptist. There's lots of those now. I guess I was one for a season. And he was telling me he was at this big Baptist convention a couple years ago, 15 years ago. And one of the speakers got up and turned to this verse and said, forbid not to speak with tongues. Just He said, let's read a scripture. So he read this scripture and he said dozens, if not scores of men got up and walked out of the service. And he said, and he waited for the effect because, you know, he was doing it for effect. He waited for it to die down. And I said, I didn't say I was teaching this. I just said, let's read a verse. I didn't realize reading the Bible among you Baptists was so offensive. Wow. Take that. And then I don't even know what he went on to preach because it probably didn't have the same effect as reading one verse did. Conclusion. There is no biblical precedence for believing that the gift of tongues is the work of a devil. This belief appears to be held out of ignorance and too much Hollywood. Without two or more scriptural references supporting this belief, it cannot be considered sound doctrine. Just cannot be. And see, we have three other doctrines to run through. And hopefully we'll answer any question you'll ever encounter or maybe any question you've ever had. And then once we're done with those two extra verses, curriculum or lessons, we have four more on top of that that deal with tongues and the necessity of the interpretation of tongues. And they deal with what tongues does accomplish in the life of the believer. I hope to, by the time we're done with nine weeks of total teaching on this, we will have almost exhausted this doctrine. Though, yeah, then that's just when the big fun begins. That's when you start really studying and experimenting with it. The best thing about any doctrine is you have to practice it. You can believe in tongues if you want to. It does you even more to pray in them. We can teach on it all the, all the more, but it's even better when we can then manifest it in service and give the interpretation of it or give the interpretation through music as we often do. Where I'll, I'll sing in tongues or somebody will sing in tongues and then we sing the interpretation for 30 minutes. That's fun. But so there's so much more to this. And I know to some degree I'm teaching to the choir, but you guys all have friends that are open to this or hungry for it or that have questions. And I guarantee you, if you'll study this, you'll have more doctrine on this than anybody in the Upper Cumberland. And most Christians that oppose this don't know their Bible very well. They're going on hearsay by somebody who half-heartedly believes it themselves. All you really have to do is take a denominational Christian overseas. It dries up a lot of stupid American doctrine. But as long as the devil keeps us stateside, we get to stay in our little comfort zone. Amen.